Not only is it deeply fulfilling to make podcasts that bring new perspectives on society to folks, with Anchor, it's incredibly simple. It's a free podcast host with tons of creation tools that help make cut and polished podcasts straight from your phone or computer. Anchor makes podcasting simple. They distribute your work to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other major platform distributors. They come with a built-in advertising system so you can make money without a minimum listenership. It's got everything you need to make a fantastic podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello and welcome to Deconstruct. My name is Fitzgerald Pucci. There are many myths in American society that are causing us to act against our own interests, and Deconstruct's goal is to shed light and give clarity on these myths. Together, we'll trace the origins of the myths our society has forgotten the history of. We'll follow the money trail of the people and institutions who benefit from these myths, and we'll study together how each myth changed the way our world works. Our goal is to equip a listener with a multitude of lenses to see each myth with a fresh perspective and give them the power to reach their own conclusions. Today, we're going to be sitting down with the host of Historian Splaining, Sam Biagetti, an antique collector, a history professor, and a historian himself. Sam and I are going to be talking about unpacking the myth of the myth the way that history can be used, twisted, and taken into all different contexts, as well as spilling some of the local tea on our own history. I am so excited to introduce him today. You're not going to want to miss this one. I'm listening to, to some of yours. I have, yeah. you're, you're, you're quite prolific, so I have Shucks. not kept up with all of them. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to when you make an episode a day for two weeks apiece. Wow, yeah. And it's it's <laughs> definitely a model that's done me very well so far. Just yeah. been like paddled to the freaking metal with it. But now that I actually have a little bit of like, if someone were to ask me, okay, what the hell is, even is your podcast? I can just whip out five hours worth of content and go check it out. <laughs> Start studying. <laughs> yeah, right. And I've always kind of been a little bit like self-conscious whenever I've even considered the idea of a podcast. When I was back mm. in journalism school, all of my professors would say to me, if you're making a project, get seven or eight or nine of the things that you want to do ready to go. Hmm. Okay. And... I didn't really do that. I kind of showed up late to the party and just said, to hell with it, we'll wing it. <laughs> but uh, I guess I made Making up for that easy. with breakneck pace. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So I'm hoping now to switch gears a little bit, to head to a once-a-week episode kind of idea. Okay, I think that's that's a good pace, Definitely. sustainable pace not only to create but for other people to listen to as well yeah yeah um and uh that the name of the podcast that's there is deconstruct it's pretty cool you can catch it on a couple of different social media forms and podcast distributors but enough about little old me 
tell me a little bit about your podcast. Uh, yeah, it's it's called Historian Splaining, mm. which very nice. You know, it's sort of like uh, the Beatles. It's yeah. like it maybe was a funny joke for a moment, but then <laughs> but then I I could never change the name. <laughs> so right. I'm, you know, it was like a I just thought of it on a whim, and then it can't really abandon it now. Yeah, uh, but it's general history, but. A lot of my point is trying to address the big picture right. and sort of meet people at like a higher level. I appreciate that so much. Please tell me more. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of history podcasts, I think, will do kind of anecdotes like, isn't mm. it so funny this person's life or this incident or, yeah. you know, and I try to do bigger things and paint a bigger picture and then maybe sometimes if I want to go into like finer details but I started with my first kind of series was about the mm. middle ages mm -hmm. which is a topic I really like it's really fun and yeah. it's misunderstood you know and I could start off by talking about kind of the big myth of the middle ages yes of what people understand the middle ages to be straight for the jugular yeah, Absolutely. yeah. I, I'm dying to hear. So, you know, I do a lot of deconstructing, yeah. you know, and I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily use the theoretical talk. You know, I'm not talk. I'm not using Derrida, Foucault sort of language. I want to, you know, another of my ongoing series is just called Myth of the Month, mm. which in a way was sort of based off a suggestion that one of my listeners made. Yeah. Why don't you talk about, you know, how people use history ideologically? And, and I thought, well, all right, you know, I can do that. That's basically historiography, you know, it's, mm -hmm. which is just the technical term for looking at how people interpret and represent history yeah and how that evolves and yeah. changes and that reminds me okay let me see if i can just take a second to find sure because this this happened a few months ago and it yeah. was so perfect and beautiful oh please and i thought i really should use this as like the the perfect illustration but let me see mm -hmm. if i this guy, you may have heard, possibly, of Matt Iglesias. I, the name oh. is ringing a bell. Okay, yeah, but yeah. here we are. Mm -hmm. Matt Iglesias is this, like, journalist pundit yeah. who was one of the creators of Vox, Ooh, this media yeah. outlet. That, Vox is big. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and there's there's Hell a lot yeah. of good reporting there. But Definitely. he's also, like, very online and tweets a lot mm -hmm. and sometimes tweets rather silly things. You know? <laughs> nice. He's, he's built a bit of a reputation on this. So mm. there was a wonderful moment a couple of months ago in, yeah. in early May, actually, where he just tweeted kind of out of the blue. He says, it's cool that the facts about American history keep changing over time in line with shifting ideas about contemporary politics, and nobody seems to be bothered by this. Yeah, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, you know, and so many people responded the same way <laughs> yeah. I did, which was saying, wow, Matt Iglesias just discovered the existence of historiography. <laughs> like, he... he 
he he just noticed that people's understanding of history and how they tell the story of the past changes based on their contemporary concerns. Way to go, Matt. You should stick a flag <laughs> in that one before someone else gets yeah, to yeah. it. It's like, oh, it's like, oh, he busted us. He really, <laughs> really got us there. Wow. Yeah. What an innovator. <laughs> yeah. But but to be fair, to be fair, historiography, mm-hmm. you know, it's a it's a kind of rarefied discipline. It's now for the person that's never heard of historiography before where where do you begin to make sense of that yeah well that's a really good question i mean i had to take two historiography classes mm-hmm. in grad school yeah that's a standard thing when you go through a history phd program mm. and they were helpful and i learned things maybe not as much as i might have right and it was actually one of the main complaints you would hear from mm-hmm students grad students in my school was like this historiography class is just kind of random it's just like a selection of books and what they sort of try to do the scheme of it is they'll take different books that take very different approaches yeah yeah to how to represent the past so you'll read maybe one or two marxist Mm -hmm. histories you'll read one or yeah well i mean at the graduate level that because that does become a lot more commonplace i feel what the, the discussion of Marx as, uh, I guess, uh, a theoretical standpoint. Well, Marx, Is there's that a there's fair a to sig- say? yeah. Well, there's a significant Marxist school of thought in history. Definitely. It's one of several, often kind of contending. Uh, mm-hmm. I can tell you stories about that. <laughs> yeah. but the, there are many different ways of of approaching the past, and right. where do you look for kind of the key? explanations Mm. right when you do history the thing is you you can't really do objective history like basically all historians accept this maybe there were a few dissenters but now it's it's pretty much universally accepted like when you look at the past you can't just recite facts that's just like a chronicle or that's just like an archive like well we've got we've got a folder over there with some numbers in it you have to piece together a story that tries to account for why yes. things unfolded the way they did or how at least they right. unfolded the context is so important to that yeah tale. yeah you have to build a picture and you have to talk about uh you know the root causes of things yeah and you can look at things in a materialist way in quotation marks which doesn't mm-hmm. mean like oh i'm a shallow materialist i only right. want to get rich it means like you think that basically economics and production are the real bedrock that drive what people do, right. you know, and that's and Marx is in that vein, yeah. right? He's a historical materialist, and that's a significant school of thought, you know. And some historians really stand by that. And you know, every time I try and think of like material production is the driving force of what ma- makes people do what they do. Part of me feels really cynical about that when I hear it. Even when I yeah. do look at Marx, and even though he has a really interesting take on it that sort of, uh, I would say, detracts from that space, I, I think to myself, well, I know that there's more to life than this. How how does history, where do we go with that? Maybe there's a school of thought that offers different thoughts. Yeah, and I mean, I tend to agree. I think that what's really hard 
across the board is mm-hmm. to think that things have many causes, right. you know, and that like right. there are several dimensions to people and why they do the things they do. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, some Marxists would say, oh, yeah, you know, there's personality and there's mm-hmm. emotion and those things exist. Yeah. But kind of in the long run, it's really right. economics that determines, you know, and some people, yeah, find that very cynical. And, Definitely. you know, there are all these arguments going on, like about the American Revolution now. Right. It's sort of hitting this weird. I've heard a little bit of that talk recently. Yeah. And there, there are always arguments about the Civil War. And yeah. now kind of the revolution is sort of being pulled into the same conversation. And, yeah. you know, some historians say, like, it's so cynical to what say are they saying about the American Revolution right well, now. Well, some people say it was basically trying to defend colonial economic interests, mm. particularly slavery. Yeah. And, you know, that can be debated a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I tend to think obviously that's a factor in it, mm. right? But I it's agree. also not so straightforward like you know, the colonials and the, the British were both making a lot of money True. off of slavery and the slave trade. True. And they didn't necessarily think, like, we have to fight this war in order to defend slavery or end slavery. That's not what people were were so concerned about. Right. At that point, it seemed like kind of an afterthought on the bigger conflict. Well, it got pulled in. And, you know, yeah. the way it got pulled in is that... A lot of colonials were very upset and outraged that Mm -hmm. they were being taxed without having a voice in parliament. And they started, you know, shouting for liberty and natural rights and uh, and against tyranny, etc. And their opponents very understandably said, how can you be shouting about liberty and the rights of man mm-hmm. when you hold slaves? Right. Look exactly. at the hypocrisy. And it was very glaring and people yeah. could see it. And so some colonials started to say, I guess maybe we should at least make a gesture of being against slavery. Right. In order to kind of save face here. Oh, man. And we're it, talking about optics here. And I think, yeah. of, I think of what we're doing in modern politics polity dynamics of what the party of today is doing and gestures still so much yeah moral so how gestures did that apply yeah back then what what did they what kind of where do they go from there to save face well there are many different responses you can make to that dilemma of being mm. called a hypocrite and mm-hmm. different people responded differently and yeah. a lot some people in the north started to actually organize against slavery little by little. Yeah. Uh, You know, and there were new restrictions put, you know, Rhode Island prohibited any more importation of African captives into Rhode Island. It had been, well, it was the major center of the slave trade in North America. It was Newport. Wow. Yeah, Newport. Newport was the capital of the slave trade in the New World. Whoa, man. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. I thought they just had a really dope jazz festival over there. What? What? Yeah, it's this charming little New England seaside town. It's so cute and kitschy, but it's the hub of... It's it's the hub of revolutionary age slave trade? Oh my god. That's where most of the wealth ultimately was coming from, in Newport. Oh my god. 
Yeah. And I remember the mansions that I went over there to look at. They were so beautiful up in the breakers, up by. Right. Well, those are later. That's true. That's true. <laughs> those are later. That's those true. are post Civil War. But in the town center, the beautiful colonial Georgian houses, the market house, the churches. Oh, no. They were built by slave money, weren't they? Largely, yeah. Ah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that's how some Rhode Islanders felt. was like, this is really embarrassing. How can we uh, be fighting for independence and freedom when this is our big industry? And When coronavirus was ending whenever that happened i was planning on making an airbnb out there now i gotta think twice about it (laughs) well you know this is but this is a tough dilemma too because Mm. a lot of the wealth of america came from slavery you know it's Mm. not like you know we're in north brookfield i'm gonna i'm gonna spill a little tea here do it uh you know, shoemaking was the major industry in North Brookfield wow. in the 19th century. It's still around. There's still Vibram, yeah. right? Well, before the Civil War, the biggest market was for shoes and boots for slaves on the slave plantations oh in the South. Oh, my God. And that also became a big controversy. And the Congregational Church actually split. Because there were Whoa. there were opponents of slavery and defenders of slavery, and the, and the church split. That's why you have the Congregational Church and the Episcopal Church right across the street from each other, because they split in the 1850s over slavery. I don't think I have the nerve to ask which one went where. I don't even know if I have yeah, the nerve to yeah. ask that. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've searched a bit, and the, the histories you can get online avoid telling you that. Right, right. <laughs> they, they skirt around it. Yep. But that that was the issue. Yeah. So this is it's pervasive all around America. Wow. You know, it's not just a Newport thing. It's wild to think that that uncomfortable conversation is as close to home as it is. Yeah. Yeah. It and is. It's everywhere. I think one of the most powerful tools for history, and in terms of my hope for what my I guess platform seeks to accomplish is to find those exact specific points where the elephant in the room has where the where the trend of leaving it untouched starts. Mm, and yeah. that I find that to be immensely powerful. Yeah, that's a really good question and there there are certain books that deal with that in a certain mm. way like there's a book called Race and Reunion yeah. by David Blight yeah. where he basically argues that there was this sort of project in the starting the 1880s yeah going on up into the 1900s there was this effort to heal the divide between yeah. north and south yeah and in so doing kind of suppress the history of slavery and the right. fact that slavery was the central issue that drove the wedge originally right. between North and South and right. to kind of downplay that and say, Oh, it was just Ooh, a misunderstanding. Yeah. It was states, states rights to do what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there were, you know, there as, as often, again, that's just another instance of historiography. It's yeah. like, well, right. People, because of the political needs of that time, they changed the way they thought about the past. And they had to kind of smooth certain things over. And it, you know, it became, there was almost like a a consensus 
not to talk about slavery or not to talk right. about it as a subject of controversy right. that people had been divided over, which is what it yeah. was for decades. A lot of the time I talk about the idea of normalizing something. And mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I see that plugging in very well right there. Yeah, yeah, that's, you can put it that way. They normalized the history of slavery mm-hmm. at that time for the right. politics for the political needs of that time. And now it's coming up again, yeah. kind of with a vengeance yeah. uh, for because of different needs and different priorities right and, now. You know, 70, 60 years ago, it also came up with a vengeance. This is, I see a very cyclical progression of the question of cruelty enacted against non-white people in the United States. And we saw... In the 60s, in the, 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 the lunch counter sit-ins, the Poor People's Campaign, Martin, and all of the other folks affiliated with that, mm-hmm. there was a bitter struggle. And those figureheads were some of the most hated individuals in the United States at that time. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. now... We've turned them into Hallmark teddy bears. Into saints. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Well, and, and with King, it, it was... It was the civil rights movement and yeah. people saying, oh, why do you have to stir things up? Right. You should wait. And also, it's always the question of waiting. And Baldwin yeah. had such a great quote about that. He said something on the lines of, my uncles were asked to wait. My grandparents were asked to wait. Yeah, I am being asked, waiting. how much do we have to wait? Yeah. Every time yeah. we go out for the plea to find some degree of liberation from this, we are told to wait. Yeah, yeah. And, and... Also, it was also because of the Vietnam War and the fact that mm. he spoke out and criticized yeah. the Vietnam War. Yeah. And all kinds of people, black and white, all sorts of people said, no, 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 you can't touch that. You're just a civil rights guy. Right. That's your thing. You're not right. supposed to cross the line and criticize foreign policy. You're supposed to stay in your lane. It's right? like when Laura Ingram told Kobe Bryant to shut up and dribble. Yeah, it's sort of like that. It's sort of like that. It's like, no, no, no. We just like you for the civil rights thing. We don't yeah. actually want your opinions right. on anything else. What and, an ugly thing to say to another person. Yeah, yeah. It really demeaning. Um, and actually, it happens that in the 60s, uh-huh. during and after the civil rights movement, 60s and 70s, there was a sort of revolution happening in historiography mm-hmm. where – and the sort of the, – the fulcrum that, that it turned on was Reconstruction. Yeah which is the period immediately after the Civil War. So when the, the Confederacy has surrendered, the southern states are occupied, yep. and the federal government sort of sends in this, you know, the Freedmen's Bureau and these yeah. officials and the, and the army and says, well, we're, we have to guarantee the citizenship rights of these freedmen, of these, ex, yeah. these 4 million ex-slaves. And that becomes a huge controversy right but there is a period where african americans organize and mobilize they create their own churches and their own fraternal societies yep. and they run for office and they yep. vote and you have black congressmen and black senators and, and you have black governors. wall street in tulsa right well all of that starts in reconstruction yep. right and then after the federal troops pull out, yeah. there's a gradual reaction, yep. right? Where these so-called yeah. redeemers... The pendulum swung. 
Yeah, it's right. And it's swung back and you get, uh, you know, white, closed, white only Mm -hmm. Democratic primaries. You get uh, terroristic groups, red shirts and things like that, intimidating black voters, keeping them away from the polls. And it wasn't just red is not the only color that they picked up there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, there there was a whole panoply of these kind of underground paramilitary groups. And some uh, of them had found their way, if I if I remember correctly, just like into the everyday functioning structure of like oh yeah. suburban society. Oh yeah, the KKK oh, yeah. in the early twentieth century was like kind of beloved by their communities. Well, they were very woven into the fabric. The KKK is complicated though because there was right. the first KKK yeah. during Reconstruction. Oh, and they were aimed at stopping black people from moving Mm -hmm. getting different jobs voting yeah attaining office they were trying to stop reconstruction basically oh oh but then they were suppressed by the ulysses s grant administration he cracked down very hard on the kkk and so they were much diminished and much weakened for a long time Mm mm-hmm and then they have a resurgence in the 1910s and 20s. Right. And you get the movie Birth of a Nation celebrating oh, the KKK. Yeah. yeah. And and Woodrow Wilson sort of uh, supports them and has a screening at the White House of Birth of a Nation. And they they sort of resurge and re kind of come out of the closet again. Yeah. Starting 1916-1917. Worst group to ever come out of the closet. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's a closet worth staying in. Yep. But yep. and they become very strong in the twenties, and in the twenties they really cross over into the north. Yeah. So you get huge organization of the clan in the north. They're all around Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and um, and in the north they're not. They are anti-black. They are yeah. racist. That's yeah. that is definitely true. But they're mainly anti-Catholic. Right. That's the big target. I've heard so much about that. Yeah. 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 There were huge rallies and, you know, denunciations of the Catholic Church and the Pope is trying to take over America. Mm. And the there was a riot in North Brookfield, actually, in 1925 between Whoa. supporters and opponents of the Klan. Whoa. And what would they be doing here? I mean, there were some African Americans, but yeah. not a lot. Yeah. But it was there was a big French Canadian and Irish Catholic workforce. Oh my in, god. In these industrial towns like North Brookfield. And that's why the Klan came to try to intimidate and suppress the Catholic workers. Oh my God. Yeah. So my mind just got <laughs> tossed in a blender. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very complicated history, you know, and this is part of why it's really, I'm very cautious of saying, well, it's all about X. You know what I mean? Like, even when it comes to KKK, you can't just say, well, it was all about slavery. It was all about racism. Right. It was. Yeah. But there's also Catholic Protestant rivalry. Right. They have so many nuanced ways of introducing racist ideology to different groups with different motivations yeah i mean you can yes it's although that's also kind of complicated it's like irish people were legally technically considered white yeah that doesn't mean 
necessarily hardcore racists always saw them as white. Right. Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. And if you were an Irish Protestant, right. you could join the KKK. But not if you were an Irish Catholic. It was right. about, for them, it was about the religious divide yeah. as well as the racial divide. It was both. And I, I guess I want to note that I, I, my previous assertion there lacked the, the nuance of the religious scope of that. Yeah, I mean. Re- That's a very good point. Religious and sectarian hatred, people yep. have been really good at that for a long yeah. time you know it which you know very true but it's sort of we don't think of it so much today because mm-hmm. today the social de- you know people almost never come to blows over religion now right the way they did then like even just a hundred years ago and when people when there's controversy and division it's mm-hmm. more now between religious versus non-religious yeah, yeah, you're right. It's not so much this church versus that church. It's are you religious or are you not? You so can't things have, have holy wars if there's only one side nowadays. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like yeah, if you're if you're a devout Protestant, for instance, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily see Catholics as a threat. I'm yeah. sure there are some who do, but yeah, you're more thinking about. Uh, well, depending on who you are and your views, right, you're right. more likely to be thinking about rising atheism or yeah. the rising number of nuns, you know, yeah. N-O-N-E, people who don't affiliate with any religion, people who just don't True. go to church at all. Like, and you're, you might be worried about creeping, you know, secularization and right. Christianity being marginalized. Like, yeah. that's more the kind of thing you're probably, you know, if you tune into Fox News. Right. They're not saying, oh, my God, these horrible Catholics. No, they're, they're saying, not. oh, my God, these horrible atheists trying to take the crash off the town green, et cetera, et cetera. Right. right. I remember – uh, so I spent a lot of time in a local Bible study, and mm-hmm. it was of my own volition. <laughs> uh, a couple of friends had invited me. I think I was the youngest one in the room by at least 40 years. And we we have these really beautiful and meaningful discussions on how we can, through the process of interacting with the, 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 the wisdom and the interactions and the different pieces of ideology that come from God, the teachings of Jesus Christ, and yeah. really digging into the nature of the Bible and interpreting it collectively it was a beautiful process and i have grown a very deep relationship with a lot of these people mm-hmm. that being said some of the folks that i that i would ask and these deeper conversations that would take place afterwards i would say things like well what does the nature of evil look like to you if we know that we're with god here i mean one what does what does godliness look like we spend mm. a lot of time discussing that but not so much what does the face of evil, what does the threat, the existential threat on this planet look like? And I had one man look me dead in the eyes and say, the gay agenda. <laughs> wow. Corroding <laughs> the moral Christian, Judeo-Christian fabric of America. Wow. And I thought... That take was so cold. If you send it to Antarctica, we might just reverse global warming. It was such a cold take. Yeah. You know, and it, what's to me, what's so striking is like 
someone who was not religious at all yeah. could say the same thing. You know what I mean? Like fair. It's like you know, and I'm not saying and that it's almost. It's like it's like I don't think like I, I don't think you're getting that from the Bible. You right. know what I mean? Exactly. I think you're getting that from some kind of political source. Exactly. Who's you that that's what you should be afraid of. The people of. who interpret the Bible have an unbelievable amount of power in those search and, and, and the same thing goes to the folks who can put their wheel uh, their hands who can put their hands on the wheel of history yeah i didn't figure out histor uh, historiography i didn't figure out historiography until i read a, a, a an algerian french feminist by the name of asha jabbar and the book, the book's name was Fantasia. It described mm. the the plundering and the horrors and atrocity of the French colonization of Algeria. Mm. And in this, there were two waves of violence. The first was the physical, the killing, the burning, the stealing, the assaults, all of that. But then there was a second wave. People who came not with swords, not with torches, but with pens. Imperial scribes committed an entirely different form of violence. The violence mm. of revisionism in mm -hmm. terms of glorifying the empire. Yeah. And it came through a very different branch of study. But I feel as though that epiphany that that gave me was very close to the idea that you're talking of, that there is a violence that takes place in the revision of history. Yeah, well, you, you certainly can see it that way. I mean, mm. and what you're describing in Algeria, it's... It's reminiscent of what I mentioned earlier about the revolution and how people saw Reconstruction. Yes, totally. You had first in the, in the 1870s and 80s, there was this political and sometimes violent pushback to sort mm -hmm. of seize back control of the southern states to take African Americans out of politics in the right. southern states. And then over the years, there was an increasing effort including by scholars and historians yeah, definitely. to to basically bury reconstruction and to say oh it was all a disaster. Right. Nothing, it was all a bad idea. They never should have enfranchised those freedmen to begin with. Right. And there was a whole school and it happens that Columbia was kind of the the big center of shifting historical scholarship really? about the United States. Yeah, yeah. So there was this school of historians called the Dunning School yeah. who churned out these books in the 1920s and 30s at yeah. the same time when the Klan is very powerful. Yeah. They're churning out these books saying, oh, look at how Reconstruction, it was so corrupt and it was misrule and these freedmen didn't know what they were doing. and Awful. And that was people's picture of, Awful. of Reconstruction until basically the 60s and 70s when this kind of new generation of historians 
Well, actually, first led by W.B. Du Bois, to yep. give full credit in God Black Reconstruction God bless W.B. Du Bois. Yeah. W.E.B. Du Bois, excuse me. Yeah, so Du Bois went around, he basically went around to, like, archives and libraries, mostly around the South, yeah. where he, like, wasn't allowed to sit in the main reading rooms. Right. And had to, like, sit off in, like, side offices or closets. Yeah. And went through the newspapers and the cables, and he said... There was huge success in Reconstruction. You know, right. people people organized. They created new schools. They got educated. Yeah, there was a lot of prosperity. It was it was not this you know period of mayhem. Right, and that it was shut down for political reasons. Yeah, you know. So later, then other historians kind of came along and picked up that thread right. and totally revised. Right, right, right. So it's like to historians, revision is not a dirty word right. necessarily because it can just mean correcting the record, you know, it can, right. or it can it to whatever take the writer deems as yeah. correct. Right, and you have to make the best argument you can. You have to go to the sources and the evidence and construct yeah. your most persuasive argument you can. And if right. you if you make a good argument, you may really revise how people see a certain period in history. Right, and that and that's can be, a lot of power. Yeah, yeah, it's and it really shifts how people see themselves in yeah. the world if you change their mythology. You know, right. And, and that is such a wild point that you make. That's bringing a new sphere of understanding to where I guess my idea of the construction of a myth exists. You myths in where i'm thinking there's this this new aspect of the convincing period mm. of the of the construction of that which does violence to the multiplicity of history because like you said there are so many factors going on at so many points I make a really deep argument about the idea of human multiplicity and how we are more complicated than simply being able to be categorized. And I see history mm -hmm. in this yeah. similar, deeply complex state where if someone tries to go and say, this is how point A, point B, point C, it's over. It just feels like an origin of violence begins in the construction of a myth mm -hmm. how does an ethical historian handle this what can people do yeah i mean it's it's that's kind of the continuing dilemma you right. know of and there is you know like i said people can approach history materialistically mm -hmm. uh they or they there's there's also this whole school of thought whig history about right which is about liberty and sometimes whig history can also be imperial you know em empires bring civilization and freedom and modernity etc yeah uh not to say all whig historians see it that way and then there's also this whole kind of school of post-structuralist mm -hmm. or, or post-modern history right which kind of first started to appear in the 1970s and 80s and yeah. then was like really very much in fashion in like the 1990s mm -hmm. 
not as much anymore, but it's still around. Yeah. Like you still, it, and, and there are very good serious works that I love yeah. that are postmodern, but postmodernist history is kind of more relativist. It's right. There are a thousand different stories. There are yeah. a thousand different perspectives and you have to kind of let them coexist. Yeah. And they discourage the notion that you have to get to like, the one true telling of history. Right. Right. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that and that is debated, too. And different historians feel very differently about yeah. post-structural or post-modern history. And is it even possible for a so you get a whole bunch of truths throughout history. Is it even possible to reach a capital T truth? I mean, that's the point where you're getting into really deep philosophy. Right. And historians mostly are not so good at getting down to that level. Of right. Like, well, if the capital T truth is unattainable, mm -hmm. does that mean it's not there? Does that mean that we shouldn't still tr strive to find it? Right. Even if it's beyond our capacity to write like the one correct book that tells right. the one correct story of reconstruction or world war one. I. I mean, I tend to think, which would be like billions of pages of details. Yeah. At, at which point then it's like, we'll just, go to the archive and look through, you know, if you yeah. want every single detail, just yeah. go to the archive and read every single document, you right, know, like you're right. not, you're not writing a history anymore unless you're interpreting and making a story of it. And I suppose it's in the interpretations of what you find in the archives where history has the power to become an extension of the self, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And you're always, it's always something of your own personality, your own mm -hmm. character, your own, agenda and right. biases are always going to like frame your story not it just color like, it but frame yeah. how you even think of the story right there's no you can't split it apart from who you are yeah. and how and how you see things personally journalists try so hard to remove themselves from their work in modern days and i think that it's soul crushing personally as a, a longtime fiction writer it makes a lot more sense to write it like fiction. Yeah, I mean, but you don't want it to be fiction. <laughs> you know, like it's, there's it's a this paradox fine balance. right there. That's a yeah. total paradox. Because yeah. the moment that you do put yourself into it, I feel like the indoctrination of your personality, the words that you choose, make it your fiction. Yeah, yeah. And the big, and I, I guess the, the entire purpose of trying to construct historical validity is to convince another person that the fiction isn't fiction. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I mean, it's a very tricky fine balance. Mm. And I think that in order to grapple with it, you mm -hmm. have to think about you know, personal character and yeah. how you approach the world and how you approach your work and say, how can I get my point across while also, you know, striving mm -hmm. to be impartial at the same time, you know, and tr strive right. not to suppress those aspects of the story that don't fit or that don't help, right. that yeah. don't help my agenda. It's a really 
it's a really tricky thing and i don't know that there is a perfect answer Definitely. you know and and so i think the the the, the quest for the perfect answer is going to waste a lot of energy and time yeah yeah and, and that's just a personal opinion i suppose right but i guess why i don't like i've never thought of myself as a postmodernist mm-hmm. even though I, I deconstruct stuff all over the place and mm. it frustrates some people like yeah. god why don't you just believe in anything you know right. i'm always going around saying like i this is not a cat culture is not a thing this is not a you know this is all mythology <laughs> so but i i've never said well i'm postmodernist or yeah. that's my school of thought yeah. because i still think like you have to i still think there's a problem and there's a dilemma of well how do mm. we write the best history we can that's as persuasive as possible and yeah. not just be relativist and not just right. say anything is true or two two contradictory things can both be equally true right like, i i guess i'm still just kind of in that in that dilemma realm that dilemma space yeah i mean what happens if you get a plural perspective on it i mean it it forces you to move forward you know mm. it forces you to think again you know and that's that's really important you know and yeah i i don't know it's hard to know what to say but for sure but like you said about reading about this book about algeria yeah it's like if you if you had decided i want to read about algeria 60 years ago for instance right and you'd gone to the library or taken a class you would have gotten either a hundred percent or 99%, you would have just gotten the perspective of the empire. Totally. And of the people who were completely enmeshed in the French power structure. They and were doing a lot of marketing back then. A lot of marketing, yeah. This is a funny, weird thing that's sort of ironic that yeah. I like to mention because I did a bunch about the Middle Ages and mm-hmm. I did several about the Crusades. Yeah. And the Crusades are like there are so many ways of spinning like why did that happen what did it mean what do we make of it and it's interesting if you go back to about 200 years ago yeah or 300 300 years ago especially hardly anyone was writing about the crusades Mm -hmm. neither in europe nor in the middle east it was like kind of a forgotten topic and Islamic scholars, you know, of course they wrote about it. They yeah. were aware of it. But it was not perceived as like a major event, major incident. Yeah. And then there was, in the 19th century, there was this big revival. And a lot of it was these French scholars mm-hmm. who supported French colonization of North Africa. Yeah. Some of them went and were teaching in schools in the French colonies oh, wow. in North Africa. Oh, wow. And they celebrated the crusades and said these are wonderful because they saw the crusaders as like their forebears like oh these christian europeans bringing civilization to the barbaric middle east it's like someone who believes in the confederacy looking at star wars episode six and going yeah i'm a rebel (laughs) <laughs> yeah, ooh, oh creepy <laughs> yeah. isn't it isn't yeah it? yeah but it's this bizarre twist of like we might have all these feelings and and controversies around 
the Crusades and which side are you on? And we can see it as this clash of civilizations, right? Of like, oh, this is like Europe and Christendom or whatever coming and and striking into the heart of the Islamic world. And it was about these two big, massive civilizations like – coming to blows one yeah. against the other. And it's not just physical at that point. At that point, they're waging ideological war. Well, I mean, yes and no. Yes mm-hmm. and no. I mean, if you if you put that picture of the world aside, yeah. there were, like, all kinds of people on both sides who switched sides. True. There were people – there were Christian people who opposed the Crusaders, who were targeted by the Crusaders. Mm-hmm. There were Muslims who helped the Crusaders. Yeah. Like, it was I'm, way messier. It was way messier. I'm so glad that you're giving that context because I would not have come up with that by myself. You're right. There is there is that cross-playing dynamic between what I imagined to be very black and white entities. Yeah, yeah. It's it's this perfect and set piece. that's my own flaw. I mean, well, it's, it's the story we're told. It's yeah. the story we're told. And a lot of it, we're told this story because... There are certain people today mm-hmm. who prefer that kind of story, who want True. to think that they're in this grand clash of civilizations. Yeah. That this is the West versus the East. This is Christianity versus Islam. And they project that onto the Crusades mm-hmm. when that's not, as far as we can see, that's not how people were thinking of it right. when they were doing it at the time. There was all kinds of yeah. confusion. And, like, why did they do it? Like, the Crusaders wanted to control the routes to Jerusalem. Yeah. That's it. Like, that's yeah. that's what it was about. And <laughs> and we sort Thank of – we make it into this whole other thing today. Right. And and the But the roots of that, like I'm saying, was in the French colonization right. of these Islamic countries. Yeah. They create this new mythology of the Crusades. Right. It's that very weird. Insane. Yeah, and I mean that's a great example of I guess this uh, this sort of violence that happens in the burying, in the removal of a sort of past ideology of this, excuse mm-hmm. me, of a past mm-hmm. historical um, body. Yeah, I mean people lived through those events, you know, right? And, and they then made... they just got hidden away for centuries. Erasure happened, you know. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. I mean, I think we there's so much complication in how people try to navigate and survive in the world. And they right. have to figure out who to trust and where to put their loyalties. Right. And it's very weird and complicated. And, uh, and yeah, I find it a little upsetting. I mean, definitely annoying. Definitely yeah. very annoying. Definitely annoying. When people... S- just boil it down to black and white you know it's not (laughs) which again frustrates a lot of people but that's how that's how i see it yeah and you have to and so another sort of dilemma is just how do you dig these things out of the past right and bring up these uncomfortable facts yeah and yeah make them you know part of our reckoning today right without Without erasing the the complexity, right, and then of what really wow. happened. If wow, wow, how did you just speak a better <laughs> mission statement for deconstruct than I've thought of? <laughs> I've spent years of my life thinking about what is it, and you just 
you, you, you just said what you just said, and wow. Wow. What a correct take. Yeah. Well, these things take a lot of thought. They take mm-hmm. a lot of thought and a lot of wrangling. And, yeah. you know, and some historians kind of are on the same page, basically, is where I am. And some right. are not. Some, I think, are just yeah. like, just as lost as anybody, you know, right. and just want to make these absolute. And they will often feel like if you don't make these absolute black and white statements yeah. of everything was all about X and it was just. It was Christianity versus Islam, or it was black versus white. If you yeah. don't, then that means you're somehow like sabotaging the the process we're doing now of like reckoning with our past and reckoning with who, how the past laid the blueprint for where we are now. God, that scares me to think of. <laughs> is there like is 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 it possible for a historical society to be branded as a domestic terrorism group? <laughs> Because that sounds like a kind of dogmatic commitment to violence that when I think of a group like that fits the bill. What do yeah. you think about well, that? Well, and to, to be fair, though, mm-hmm. the dogmatism was there in these older traditional schools like the Dunning School, yeah. you know, which, right. which often were very racist yeah you know and a lot of the traditional historiography of the american revolution also was very racist too and that you know oh you know african americans had nothing to do with it and uh you know and and uh, the the british were just using the slaves against the colonists and there's a lot of there was a lot of dogmatism already there right i just think you have to be careful not to sort of then react into your own dogmatism, my right. better dogmatism. Right. <laughs> you know? And I've been there so many times. Mm. And I've, I've realized if I do that, I will continue the cycle that has been getting people killed and hurt for so long. And I've, I've begun to ask this point of, what if I'm not looking for a revolution anymore? What if I'm looking for a resolution? We've been continuing so many cycles of history. It finds itself to constantly repeat itself. And yet, we are still as a society looking for some of the deepest answers to the problems that have existed for as long as we can remember. This is part one of the San Biagetti conversation on Deconstruct, and we'll be releasing part two very soon as a bonus episode. Please! Give us a follow on all the social media platforms and podcast distribution sites you can find. You can get all of those on our link tree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Deconstruct Podcast. One of the most powerful things that we have available to us as human beings is the ability to have conversations with each other. So, if you know someone that you think might be interested in the topics Deconstruct has to offer, reach out to them. Say hey. Recommend them your favorite episode. We have a Facebook group. We have a meme group on Facebook. We have our Twitter page. We have our Instagram page. There are so many ways that you're going to be able to connect with us. And I can't wait to expand and deepen the relationship that we have. Materials, Patreon, and merchandise are going to be coming along in the next little while. We're starting plans for that now, so keep your eyes peeled. I want to thank you so much for making it to the end of this week's episode. As we change into this lower shift of gear 
into the deeper stuff. We're going to be bringing in a ton of new folks. And if you're interested in coming on Deconstruct to talk about something, if you have someone that you think would make a really interesting perspective, if you know people that are in the podcasting world and you'd like to have us link up, reach out to Deconstruct, send us a DM, and we'll get it all rolling. I wish you love, joy, peace, safety, and health. Stay cool, stay sharp, and stay beautiful. I love y'all. See you soon. My name is Fitzgerald Pucci, and this is Deconstruct. Deconstruct.